Let's take our Bibles and we're looking to 2 Peter today towards the end of the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2 is where we'll focus, but to catch the context, I'll go back just a little bit from chapter 1 of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I couldn't jump into chapter 2 without touching on this a little bit more from last week. Time sort of inhibited us from going further into that section. So I wanted to take the opportunity this morning to talk just for a moment about biblical inspiration and the miraculous role of the Holy Spirit who brought us this remarkable book that we call the Bible. Now we need to understand the divine authority and the authorship of the scripture. Astonishingly, as you and I know, about 40 men composed The Bible from various backgrounds they were writing over a course of 1,500 years. They were prophets and priests and king and fishermen and shepherds and tax collectors and tent makers and a physician and a whole host of other men who did various things who wrote the collective work and all of them wrote the words of God. A revelation given to them by God himself, by his spirit. With their own voices and with their experiences, men wrote the divine inspiration, meaning that God's Spirit guided them in such a way that they accurately recorded the words that God perfectly intended to bring about. Therefore, God is the divine author and the originator of every word of the Bible. So when Peter assures us that the prophecy did not come from someone's own interpretation, nor the will of an individual. He tells us instead that prophets spoke the words of Scripture as they were, in his words, carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit supernaturally ensured that everything written in the Bible was exactly as he intended it to be. Let me explain it. Another way, while human writers of Scripture were actively involved in the process, it was under the divine supervision of God Himself, His Holy Spirit. Yes, they utilized their own personalities and their thought processes and their vocabulary, but they faithfully composed and recorded without error the precise words that God intended for you and me to have and every other person who wanted to know the voice and the words and the intentions of a holy God. The Apostle Paul, who is absolutely confident in the word of God, says that this word is breathed, God breathed. In other words, it's from the mouth of God. And so that's why when we hear it and when we read it, We know that it has divine authority over our living. We derive from it this trustworthy word 
We derive from it all of the doctrines of our faith and all of our life pursuit and the measure of our life in Christ comes from what we understand this revelation to be about him and the fulfillment of God's intention. So we're grateful for that word. Now that brings us into chapter two because chapter two begins in this way, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with their false words, their condemnation from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, commend, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Catch this. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We're grateful that God has given us this word and that we might learn from it, we might be challenged by it, and we might live according to its truth. So, oh, Father, by your spirit, who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear, let us hear you today. And with your sustaining grace, May your spirit help us to walk in its truths, give warnings to the one who needs warning, and give affirmation to the one who walks in righteousness. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. The last point of last week's message was pretty significant. It's really the main point of the message, and that is Christ Jesus is coming in glory and power, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. That's what you and I need to understand. It's what Peter is wanting us to, to hold on to. But now false teachers are certainly leading away from this. So Peter is giving that warning. And he's saying to us where God's truth is flourishing, the enemy is propagating lies. So all that that we read about the scripture and how God has brought it to us without error, that it is exactly as God intended it to be, all of that is true. But at the same time, prophets are giving truth. The enemy is bringing false prophets to propagate lies. And Peter is not just acknowledging that. He is telling us to be alert as well. 
Because when God commissioned the prophets to speak his words of truth, the enemy sends in false prophets to bring deception to the people. Now, God's people could always identify false prophets. If they paid attention and obeyed the words of God, they would always be able to know who the false prophets were. And you and I know that to be true because we can see it in Scripture. False prophets contradict God's word. God says something and the false prophets say something else. You would know a false prophet when a false prophet was 99.9% accurate. God required prophets to be 100% accurate because God is perfect. And if they're declaring the word of God, then his word is going to be perfect. So anybody ought to be able to determine if there's a false prophet based on the accuracy of their prophecies. If they are not 100% true and accurate, regardless if they're on TBN or not, if they're not 100% true, they are a false prophet prophet. Thus saith the Lord. You know what he told the people of Israel to do with false prophets, don't you? Take them out and stone them, for they will lead you astray away from me. And they live unrighteously and divisively because their lives are filled with greed, seeking after fame and power They have impure motives. It's what Peter describes here. They are marked with sensuality. They deny and they distort the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so all those are false prophets. We ought to be able to clearly identify a false prophet. So just as God has warned Israel about false prophets, now Peter is warning the church that there are false teachers among us. And he tells us to remain vigilant to be watchful, to be insightful, to be intellectually savvy with God's word. Intellectual laziness and lethargy has just moved through the church today. We, we take people's word as it is God's word. Don't take people's word as it's God's word. Measure everything that I say against God's word and everybody else you ought to hold to the same standard. So we must be serious-minded And acutely aware that Satan, the father of lies, is commissioning people to bring deception into the church and to attack the church and to lure the people of the church away from truth. And unfortunately, his calculated schemes of false teachers among us and with various modes of media that we follow for personal worship and instruction, they are devastatingly effective. So he tells us to be very alert. And since false teachers often mix among the lies, their lies with the truth of God's word is difficult for many to hear the discrepancies. And so they fall prey to their deceit. Now notice that Peter is giving us two very distinct uh, sets of people, the description of which could not be more divergent than they are. One, he says, the Holy Spirit carries along true prophets. The the Spirit of God is carrying them, carrying their words as they are, are voicing the words of God. The Spirit of God is carrying them along. They're genuine men of faith, and they are proclaiming God's words of truth. And Peter is highlighting them, but he's also highlighting 
that at the same time, Satan is infiltrating lies into the church and individuals attempting to drag people down, pulling them away from Christ and away from the truth of God. So the enemy's pawns systematically promote false religions and false belief, and they have uh, propagated throughout the world. They're full of lies and deceptive practices, and for the most part, those of us who are in God's word spot those pretty easily. I think where our susceptibility is not often in the realm of those false religions, although some in the church have been swayed by false religions, I think our greater susceptibility is actually in the modern practices of Christianity, particularly among churches that have embraced the Western culture. When you allow the culture to infuse into the church, it is easy for false teachers to take their stand. In a quest to be relevant, many a church today will weaken their stance and diminish biblical and doctrinal teaching so that they might be relevant to the community. You and I are not meant to be relevant to community. God's word is the relevance. We're bringing God's word to the community. We're bringing our lives of righteousness to the community. So preachers who do this no longer stand and preach on sin and repentance and holiness. Instead, they view themselves as life coaches, if you will, trying to help and inspire their membership to live the best lives they can. And they exchange God-centered and biblically derived music with ecocentric music that really entertains. It's, it sounds good, it feels good, I can, I can feel the vibe, I get goosebumps and all that kind of stuff. And clearly the greatest vulnerability in the church is for those whose churches have wolves that have dressed like sheep or shepherds and they mingle among the congregation. They write and sing music that sounds good and moves us emotionally, but they are weaving deceit into the hearts, the emotional hearts of people. They speak whimsically stories that often stir the heart emotionally like tilling the soil ready to plant their seeds of lies and deception to the unknowing and the unperceptive. They promote love while they soft pedal God's righteous demands and they highlight the mercy of God without ever heralding the judgment of God that must always come first. They discount the sinner's sin and promote people to positions of authority even though they live abominably before God and they mischaracterize his word and make it more culturally appealing and inclusive they can sway denominations and churches and individuals, and they do it all in God's name under the guise of the devil. And Peter is wanting us to be alert to that, to know that's exactly how it happens in churches throughout the centuries. So he tells us to be alert. So I say, Meadowbrook, today you and I ought to reconstitute our fortitude so that our eyes are open and looking, we're sober-minded, and we live protected with the helmet of salvation, a shield of faith, a breastplate of righteousness, a waist that is girded with truth, a sword of the Spirit, the Word of God in our hand at all times, that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. That's what Peter is calling us to. That's what the Apostle Paul called us to. He's warning that false teachers secretly bring in destructive heresies. 
Heresy is a word that we don't often use today, but I just want to remind you that it is anything that is contrary to the true gospel, a heresy. The apostles wanted us to be alert to the false teachers who sneak in with their lessons and their songs and their sermons and their posts and their conversations. The attempt is to draw people away from the true gospel, exchanging that true gospel of Christ for some personal appearance or preferences, uh, personal opinion or preferences. I was struck by John MacArthur's warning and his commentary on 2 Peter when he writes to us, false teachers do not always openly oppose the gospel. Some claim to believe it, to have the true interpretation of it, but in truth they misrepresent it or offer a shallow, inadequate message that cannot save. Because their teaching is as lethal as it is subtle, the self-styled opinions of false teachers can damn the souls of the unsuspecting professed Christians. Unless they repent, believe the truth, and turn to Christ, those who embrace these heretical doctrines will be eternally lost. So thus Peter warns us, that people who teach and embrace gospel heresies, even all the way to denying the master, that's the word Lord that we read in scripture, the master, the Lord Jesus, they will experience God's swift destruction. Now, the few times that Peter mentions that word destruction, uh, he uses that interchangeably with the final damnation of God. So he's saying there will come a swift damnation on those who are not given to the true gospel. Do you, do you see any wonder why Peter would say you need to be warned that there are false teachers that will try to draw you away from the truth? And he's saying that not only will those who propagate such heresies have a final damnation, but those who follow them will have that as well. So be warned. Measure everything to the truth of the gospel. What does God's word say about that? Are her words, are his words in alignment perfectly with God's word? If not, I, I want to move away from them. That's why it's so tragic that so many churches and denominations have embraced heresies in the name of love and inclusion today and have moved people away from God's true doctrine. Churches who are embracing those in their church who simply live in the LGBTQ society and community and culture and practice, they have embraced heresies. The gospel strongly communicates that all people must put their faith and trust and surrender in Jesus Christ, who alone can rescue us from the eternal holy wrath of God. And trusting God, we surrender to him, we confess our sins, we repent of those sins, and we are made new in Christ Jesus by his spirit. And he gives us a new nature. Those people are warmly welcomed into the community of Christ. The door is Christ and he opens that door to all who will follow him and believe and trust in him. I, I am encouraged by 
Paul's words to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. They will not, he says, inherit the kingdom of God. And you say, well, what's encouraging about that? What's encouraging is what follows. Because immediately following that verse, it says, and such were some of you. In other words, the gospel is open to everybody. The gospel is saying to everybody, come to Christ. In his gift to you, he will forgive you and make you new. Come to Christ. Die to self, die to your sin, and live in him. He will exchange your dead ways for his life. Come to him. And when you come to him, he will make you new. And so those who were in the church at Corinth were made new. Some of them used to be these things, but he says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So you see the heresy, it's a slight twist in order to be loving and kind and inclusive to all people. Just come. Anybody can come. Anybody can be members of our church. You don't have to change in any way. That's a shift. That's a heretical shift. Instead, the gospel says, come, all sinners, come to Christ and he will make you new. He will make you to be born again from above. He will give you a new nature he will make you one who is holy and declare you that. Come and he will make it so that you don't have to be driven in the sensuality of your flesh, but you can be given to the spirit who will reside within you. Come to him. And yet churches change that today and leaders who are false teachers change that. So when the church openly embraces and welcomes unrepentant, unregenerate people into their membership, people who God disallows into the kingdom of heaven because they remain in their sin rather than be born again from heaven, then they live and minister heretically, bringing judgment upon themselves and all who follow their false teaching. You see, see the words there and how they are lived out today in the common Western church? So Peter mentions in verse two, the motive for following those kind of heresies, the one who gives it, the one who follows, he says they will follow their sensuality. In other words, they, they're given to the flesh, not given to Christ. They don't want to give up the things of the flesh. They want Christ inclusive of the things of the flesh, and that's heretical. So he says those who follow them will end up in damnation because, the, because of them the way of the truth is blasphemed. So with simplicity, Peter explains that many people who profess to be Christians are not they refuse to submit to Christ and his lordship as master, denying the authority of the Bible over their lives. Sensuality rules them. In other words, the flesh, the desires of the flesh and the world are what dictate in their lives. And that is not the way it is to be with those who are followers of Christ. He is our master, not the world. He is our master, not our flesh. He is our master. By his spirit, we live in him not in our sensuality. So Christ came to set us free from all those desires of the flesh. Christ came to set us free from the sin of sensuality where we pursue the things of the flesh over anything else. 
And when we walk in the freedom of Christ, we bring glory and honor to him. Some of the worst parts of our living is now the great story, the narrative of the gospel where Christ has brought transformation to us. The things that I once wanted to hide, I now find myself sharing with people because Christ has set me free from those things. Do you find that to be true in your life? That those things actually become your greatest opportunity for ministry and to bring glory to Christ because you're no longer walking in those things. But by rejecting the Lordship of Christ, despite claiming to be a believer, some actually continue in the sensuality and choose not to submit themselves to Christ and try to bring others to that place of sinfulness with their lying deceit. And that brings heresy to the church and to people and damnation to their souls. So now we more clearly understand why Peter says that people who deny the master, the Lord Jesus, bring swift judgment upon themselves. And then he points out three illustrations of God's condemnation and destruction against the sinful. He highlights the sinful angels, the ancient world, and sinful cities. And then among those examples, he highlights and illustrates God's rescuing and redeeming his own. And he points to Noah and Lot who walk righteously. Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse, chapter two, verse four through 10, that's a, a pretty good section of what we read today. If you look at it in your Bible, you'll, you'll note that it's one continuous sentence and the English translators have brought it to us that way because that's the way it is in the original language. It's all those verses of a continual building argument. He's building it to make a, a very specific point. Now, there's a lot of words on the screen right now, and you're probably thinking, I can't hardly read that. But what I've done is taken those verses from chapter 2, verse 4 through 10, and I've just selected the, the beginning parts of them so that you can see the building of the argument more easily. Uh, let me read it to you. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in, into ashes, he condemned them, and if he rescued righteous Lot, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. I think the conclusion there at that end is the big deal. He's helping us to recognize that in a world where sin is abounding and among people who claim Christ but may not live under the submission of his lordship, you will find that God will bring forth and carry the righteous and he will condemn and damn those who are heretics, those who are unpursuant of Christ the Lord. In essence, Peter is arguing when biblical history is replete with examples of God's judgment against sinners, those who choose to live faithlessly and unrighteously like angels and ancient cities and sinful cities, when that's the case, how in the world would somebody ever conclude that the Lord is not coming in power and glory to judge the living and the dead? 
How could that be the case? You see that running argument he has? The, the big point is the Lord is returning and he's gonna return in glory and power. And when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. And then you've got these false teachers. Well, it's not really the way it is. And they'll try to lead people away so that they can live their life in any way they want and, and build a kingdom in any way they desire and, and go for their sensuality that would, that would bring gratification to their bodies. You can do that. You can still have all this and God, he's not coming to judge you in that way. Paul says you need to be forewarned. Not only did God say that false prophets would come among Israel, there are false teachers that are in the church right now and they may sound right, but you better declare it to this word. You better measure it to the declared word of God. You need to be very, very guarded on what people say God accepts and what he doesn't. What it's like to live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and what it's not. Well, how do we know those things? The inerrant word of God, the pages of the Bible. Read those words for yourself. Know them, trust them, dive into them and let them be exposed in your life. Now it's fascinating, I, I don't have a lot of time to dig into it, so I'm not. But when false angels forsook God's authority and possessed men in order to experience women sensually, God cast them into hell and committed them to chains until his final judgment would come upon them and he would cast them in the lake of fire. And in the ancient world, when God saw the wickedness of man was so great in the earth so that every intention of his heart was given to that which was evil, Continually, he brought forth a destructive flood upon the earth because it was the world of the ungodly. And when the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked, as the scripture says, great sinners against the Lord, given to gross sensuality and sexual immorality, then God determined to destroy those cities and their inhabitants. And among the entire populace, there was not to be found 10 righteous people Therefore, Genesis 19.24 says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And yet, God rescued Noah and his family, and he saved Lot and his daughters from that judgment. And why? Because verse 10 says, Noah was a righteous man. And verse 7 says that God rescued Lot. Lot was righteous. And it says again in verse 7 that that righteous man lived among them. And then in verse 8, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds. You know what the commonality in Noah and Lot is? Righteousness. And righteousness comes by faith. So here are men of faith who live out the expression of that faith righteously. So there is coming a day when God will judge the living and the dead. The dead he will condemn, damn for all eternity. The righteous, those who are alive in Christ, he will rescue them. And so that's the reason why we sing of the wonder of heaven because that is God's rescue for us. When he will glorify our bodies as he has already glorified our spirits and we will forever live with him in his holiness and in his righteousness and in his way. So second Peter has much to say about the world's obsession with perversion and sensuality. And you and I have much to say about it as well. 
This is a porn-scarred world, brutally wicked and divisive in many ways where abuse abounds and greed grows more extensively. But we would expect that from a world that's condemned and judged in their sin. Peter did not write this letter to the world. Peter wrote this letter to the church. This is God's word to us. It's a message for the church that we should not tolerate sensuality and rebelliousness among people claiming Christianity and associating with the church. Instead, we must stand distinctly in righteousness, the nature that is given to us in our salvation by faith in Christ, by the Holy Spirit. This is the way we must stand. This passage calls for us to be true to our identity in Christ, the Lord of righteousness, and trust him to judge, to judge the world and to rescue us from that judgment. For the Lord Jesus Christ will come in glory and in power, and he will judge the living and the dead and he will save his own. And so while we walk in faith with the presence of the Holy Spirit, we must be alert to falsehood around us. Unfortunately, so many Christians, so-called Christians and leaders misguidingly teach and lead people and congregations falsely to a doctrine that is not given from the scripture. For those who trust in Christ by faith and adhere to this truth, God is going to rescue us eternally one day. Just as he saved Noah and Lot from his wrath, so he will do for us in those last days. So I say to us, by the authority of God's word, let us stand in righteousness. Let us be given to truth, knowing the end. For the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous from punishment on his day of judgment. So help us, Lord, I pray, to live rightly before you and others, to hold dear to your word, to believe it, to pursue it with great calculated faith, to be inspired by it to the point that our lives, even though they may not always be lived in front of others, would be lived rightly before you with righteousness and godliness. Help us to hold true to your word and only your word. Help us to be very distinct, keenly aware to those who call out claiming to speak your words and your truth. Help us to measure everything that we are hearing, both in word and song, to your scripture. And I pray in the end that we would live our lives in a way that would lead others in your way. That they might have the hope of heaven as they pursue Christ, trusting in the one who could change them from the inside out. To the glory of our King, I pray. Amen.